Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. The sixth episode of our series on Jeremiah reveals that the book is not all about judgment. Chapters 30 through 33 bring words of comfort, promise, and hope for the future. Jeremiah. And do you remember the Disney movie Pollyanna? Actually, a much better movie than the than the cliche of Pollyanna. But you know what she wanted to do? She she just uh, discovered that there were an, an awful lot of happy verses in the Bible that you could preach on, not just angry verses. This is the section of Jeremiah. If, if Jeremiah had a following on Twitter, this is the section where the people who followed Jeremiah, he would start losing followers on Twitter. Because they weren't the Jeremiah. That This was not the Jeremiah that they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear the Jeremiah that was storming and railing and judgment and, and the yes, yes, bring it on, bring it down. Now Jeremiah wouldn't have had Jeremiah didn't have many followers anyway. I mean, there were he was not a popular prophet. If there were ever any popular prophets, Jeremiah was not one of them. And yet, and yet, there Jeremiah did have some people who were supporters of his, who believed what he was saying. There weren't many, but some of them were highly placed, and some of them kept him from frying when other prophets were chased down, hunted down, arrested, brought in, and executed. There's an episode like that that we looked at last week. This passage, this is, the, this is the, what uh, some call the book of comfort in Jeremiah. This is, you know, we look at, we've been looking at uh, you know, those early chapters of Jeremiah as, as though he were a, a musical artist and poet who was, you know, these were things in CDs. The later chapters of Jeremiah are very clearly things that were put together after they were all done, some of them were brought together from different times and from, you know, edited together from different periods of his ministry and brought together very possibly, probably, probably even Baruch, a man who is named in the book of Jeremiah as being his scribe. Now we know by the nature of what is put together that Baruch was a whole lot more than a scribe to Jeremiah. Maybe he himself was not or did not consider himself to be a prophet who was receiving words from God. But he was, in, in terms of how he related to and ministered to Jeremiah, it was very much the way that, it looks very much the way that Elisha ministered to Elijah before Elijah was taken up. He was very close to Jeremiah. He was, I think we, would, we could at least call him a disciple of Jeremiah. He was not merely a scribe that Jeremiah hired to take down dictation. And Baruch apparently took it upon himself after 
Jeremiah was gone. To collect the, thing, the things of Jeremiah that had not been known before, that had not been widely disseminated, that hadn't been published, or maybe that had just been put out in scraps or pamphlets or tracts, but to bring them together and, and, to, and to put them into a form. And he collected, there, there were a series of messages that Jeremiah brought that are crucial to the calling of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was given a six-part message from God. That's given all the way back in chapter 1. Quickly, look, let's touch base with it there. Rather than simply quote it, let's just go ahead and touch base with it. Jeremiah 1, 9 and 10. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And then the Lord, by the way, that's not... Think about it. If you're a young preacher being called and the first word that the Lord tells you is this, don't be afraid of those people. I'll protect you from them. You know you're going to be in trouble from then on. Okay? Then the Lord put out His hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. See, not just over the, the nation and kingdom of Judah, but over nations and kingdoms, plural. And we saw that Jeremiah's message has gone out, not just to the kingdom of Judah, but also to the nations and kingdoms around Judah and all of those nations and kingdoms that were involved with Judah and with the echo intended to shout over even them through space and through time to the nations and kingdoms of the world to let them know this is what the plan of God is. God is the ruler of all the nations, not just over one. And he says, Behold, I have set you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow. Four negatives and then two positives, to build and to plant. Now, in all of those negative messages, those CDs, those albums that Jeremiah has put out before and those that are put out, in every one of those, even in the midst of the most excruciating messages of judgment, that wrung Jeremiah's own heart and made him the weeping prophet because he did not want to bring the message that he wanted to bring, that he had to bring. And yet even in the midst of those, there were always words of hope, there were words of encouragement, or there were words of promise. In this, there are still words of judgment. This passage, 30 through 33, there are still words of judgment. And they're strong. It's, it doesn't let up. There are no compromises in Jeremiah's message. This does not represent a compromise of Jeremiah's message. But it represents the fullness of Jeremiah's message. And this passage that we're looking at today, you are going to be glad you were here to study this. This, this is going to lift you up. Even, and one of the things that, I've no, that I notice in studying is, even the promise will break your heart. See what God does. See the plan of God. Look at this. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Any question about that? <laughs> Now, last week, the main theme of last week was Jeremiah versus the false prophets and the distinction between the true prophet and the false prophets. 
sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. If you're just looking at surface matters, sometimes a true prophet, the false prophet, looks just can masquerade himself, look just exactly identical to a true prophet, and even through Jeremiah's office game briefly, but he never compromised. And then when he received the fuller word from the Lord, he came back, and of course the false prophet went down, Jeremiah, you know. But, see, the world doesn't care. The world doesn't care. These battles between true prophets, the world, world doesn't care. The world will go on in its disobedience. But the, but the word of the Lord stands. We need to understand that, folks. The word of the Lord stands regardless of the fact that the world doesn't care. We're going to see all that today. Keep reading. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. See, if I'm not careful, I'm going to start giving the lesson before I get to the scripture. And I don't want to do that. I want it to go the other way around. So, chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30. Okay, now we're back there. The word of the Lord, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Write in a book all the words that I've spoken to you. Think of a book as a scroll. That's what it's talking about. They didn't have books like this, scrolls. For behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. See, now this is familiar. And every time before, when Jeremiah says the days are coming, or the day is coming, or the day is approaching, when Jeremiah uses those words, we've been kind of conditioned to duck. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I will bring them back to the land that I gave their fathers. And they shall take possession of it. Now, we're going to see in just a little while what's going on in the midst of all of this. Where is this message being delivered? When is this message being delivered? This message is being delivered at the time of deepest despair for Judah. Judah is about to receive the coup de grace from the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar is about to strike the death blow. And in these moments, that's when God says, this is not going to be the end of the story. Can you hang on to that? These are the words the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. And then he comes out with a song. Thus says the Lord, we've heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. And now and see, ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his belly like a woman in labor? Why is every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob. Yet, he shall be saved out of it. This is the ultimate cliffhanger. How can our hero survive this? And here's the, here's the answer. There is no way. But he'll be saved. There is no way he can be saved. But he will be saved. And it shall come to pass that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck. You remember the yoke that Jeremiah wore? You remember that? And he wore it around apparently for weeks. It was really dispiriting to the false prophets until one of the false prophets 
got up the gumption and came up to Jeremiah, stood face to face, toe to toe, eye to eye with Jeremiah and said, God says that yoke, I shall break this yoke and took that yoke off of Jeremiah's neck and threw it down and broke it. And Jeremiah was thinking and everybody went, <gasps> Jeremiah's response to that, his immediate response was, listen, I pray that the Lord will do everything that you said. But you better be careful. And then Jeremiah came back and he had heard a word from the Lord says, this is, what the, this is what the Lord actually says. You remember that wooden yoke? Oh, that wooden yoke is broken, but God's bringing in a yoke of iron and it's not going to be broken. Now there's a reference to this yoke again. He says, I'm going to take that yoke. I will break the yoke off from your neck. I will burst your bonds and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away. Look down, Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease and none shall make him afraid for I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure and I will by no means leave you unpunished for thus says the Lord. Now watch this, watch this a paradox here. Paradox, two things that seem to cancel each other out. Either one or the other is true. And yet they are both affirmed to be true by the one who knows all truth. For thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable. What does incurable mean? It can't be fixed. You're not going to get better. You're not going to recover from this. Your hurt is incurable and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. Look on down at the bottom of verse 14. Because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. Don't, don't give me the whiny baby stuff and say, why are you doing this to me? You deserve it. You're as guilty as sin. You know it, I know it, and the American people know it. You're guilty. You deserve this, and you know that. In your heart of hearts, you know you deserve it. No whining. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured, verse 16. And all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. They're not guiltless either, and they are going to pay for their sins that they have done to you. But that's not the, that's not the sweet thing. The fact that, oh, yeah, yeah, well, at least the people who hurt us are going to get, they're going to get their, what they due to them. So what? Keep reading verse 17. For I will restore health to you and your wounds I will heal. Wait a minute. The wound was incurable. I know. But I'm going to heal you. Why? Because they called you an outcast. You know who you are? You are the people that I have called by my name. If they diss you, they diss.
this me. Remember that promise God said to Abraham? Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And through you and your seed, all the nations of the world should be blessed. God has not forgotten the promise that he gave to Abraham. And ultimately, that promise is going to result in the coming of a Savior for all of us. It's all about Jesus. We're going to see that most clearly before we're through with this passage. They've called you an outcast. It's Zion for whom no one cares. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes in the tents of, Jacob, of the tents of Jacob. Have compassion on his dwellings. Verse 19. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving. I will multiply them. They shall not be few. I will make them honored and they shall not be small. Verse 21. For who, uh, their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. Their king is going to be someone from among them. And he is going to be like a priest. The priest is the one who actually approached God and came into the presence of God. Who would just dare of himself to approach me? Everyone who had done that in the past paid for it. When well-meaning Uzzah put his hand on the ark in order to steady it to keep it from falling off the ox cart which it should never have been on in the first place that was a Philistine method of transporting the ark and the, the ark quaked Uzzah well meaning put his hand upon the ark unauthorized by God fell dead put David into a funk for several months before he figured it out said well maybe we ought to do this God's way not so well-meaning, proud, good King Ahaz went into the holy place of the Lord to burn incense on the altar, which no king had authority to do. Only a priest. And he went in a healthy man, and he came out a leper, stricken by God. You don't do that. You don't just come into the presence of God unbidden. I will make him draw near and he shall approach me. And here, the classic thing, words that go all the way back to Abraham, words that were brought forward through Moses, words that go all the way to the book of Revelation. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. And things will be the way that they always were supposed to have been. Chapter 31. At that time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel and they shall be my people. Continues with the songs. Continues the music, continues to play. Thus says the Lord. The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. Look at these words. Here's your refrigerator verse. You want to you mark something? Put this one down. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. You know what that says in Hebrew? It says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Hebrew is kind of like, Greek has different words for love. You've probably been told that. 
Did you know that Hebrew has one basic word for, Hebrew is like English, it has one basic word for love that fits for all things. So God simply doesn't say, I have loved you. Because that can mean a lot of different things. Just like it does in English. You use the word love for a lot of different things. And in Hebrew, the word love was a common word that was used for a lot of different things. Ranging from simple affection and enjoyment all the way to a total commitment of life one to another. God's, so God amplifies that says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, a love that is forever. A love that never goes away. And therefore, and then he amplifies that, therefore I have continued my faithfulness. That's a word that's translated in other places, love. It's translated sometimes loving kindness. It's sometimes translated kindness. It's the Hebrew word chesed. And what it means is covenant faithfulness. It means I am never, ever going to let this go. So if you need a refrigerator verse, there you go. Don't you forget it. In spite of everything that you may experience, never forget that. Never forget that. Look at verse 6. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. The invaders came in from the north. You think, from the north? Well, I thought, I thought Babylon was to the east. Yeah, it is. But the, nobody travels into... Even to this day, you don't go from straight from Babylon to Jerusalem. You don't, you don't do that. You take a north route. Why? Because you've got uncrossable mountains and uncrossable desert. So you, you avoid that on land. You come by the north route. You follow the Tigris, Euphrates, you follow the Fertile Crescent around, the routes that way, you go there. So the invasions, all of the invasions of Israel that, that came, came from the north. I will return, I will bring you back from the north. And gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Look at verse 9, with weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy, I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they will not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Now here, consider this. This is all beautiful, but put this in the context of the larger message of Jeremiah. The larger message of Jeremiah, God basically in so many words has said, I disowned you. I don't know you. I don't know who you are. I reject you. Because you have rejected me. But now, and, and even here, God says, your wound is incurable. It can't be cured. So you know what? I'm God. I'm going to heal you. You have been sent away and you've been scattered. I'm going to gather you. You've been lost to the, to the winds. I'm going to bring you back. The Lord will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. Verse 13. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. Look at the bottom of verse 14. And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. And then these powerful words of prophecy that are brought forward even in the New Testament. 
and misunderstood the way that Matthew uses them in the New Testament. I'm not going to go deep into that. When we get to Matthew, we'll talk more about it. But look at these words as Jeremiah uses them. A voice, the, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Who is Rachel? Who's the reference? Jacob's favored wife. Joseph, the mother of Joseph and of Benjamin. Rama is in the territory of Benjamin. Rachel died after giving birth to Benjamin. And she named him Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow. Jacob said, I can't leave, I can't leave the last link that I have with the woman who had my heart with the name son of my sorrow. I'm going to call him Benjamin, the son of my right hand, the son of my strength. So that's, so, and Rama is in the territory of Benjamin. And so we see this, this profound and provocative poetic image that's used by Jeremiah as he brings us Rachel weeping for her children. As an as a expansion, Rachel only had two children, but it's an expansion to all of the children of Israel. Weeping for her children, for they are no more. There you see, in the history, Rachel was the one who died, not her children. But here we see Rachel as, as it were, the mother of all Israel. Thus says the Lord. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. You want another refrigerator verse? But look at it in the context of where it is. Verse 17. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You've disciplined me and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored for you are the Lord my God. After I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded. I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. There's no distinction. It's God saying, they're all coming home. They're all coming home. I've not forgotten any of them. Israel and Judah are brought together. And when he refers to Ephraim, Ephraim is historically was associated with the northern kingdom of Israel. So when he says Ephraim, basically he's including everybody. He said, when he says Ephraim, he's saying Israel, not just Judah. Israel, everybody, all of the scattered tribes, everybody's coming home. And look at what he says. Therefore, my heart yearns for it. Have you seen that in 
up until this point in Jeremiah, if you've looked close, you have. That's always been there. And there was a time in one of those earlier CDs that we looked at from Jeremiah in which Jeremiah is pouring out his heart and tears are flowing from his eyes. And yet there's a movement in the language there and it seems as though Jeremiah is weeping the tears of God. Do you see what's going on here? My heart yearns for them. And this whole passage turns, by the way, on the word, a simple Hebrew word, the word turn. The word turn shows up. It doesn't show up in English translation. In English translation, we show the nuances of that word turn. But in Hebrew, the word repent, relent, turn, turn back. Return. It's all the same Hebrew word. Everything flows out of that. Poetry is powerful. And everything turns on the word turn. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more shall they use these words in the land of Judah and its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you. O habitation of righteousness, O holy. How powerful is that? Because God has cursed this city. And God says, yet there's going to come a day in which, every, in which it's going to be able to be said again, the Lord bless you. Verse 25, For I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. That's not a bad refrigerator verse either. Verse 28, and it shall come to pass as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own sin. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. This apparently was the proverb of the day. Especially in the exile. One of the reasons we know this... Ezekiel also deals with this same attitude and this same proverb. And Ezekiel's over, he's, he's a prophet that God has raised up in Babylon. The same proverb. And basically, the whole idea is, none of this is our fault. We're doing, God has punished us for the sins of our ancestors. Which is a cop-out. They knew it. But Jeremiah's bringing the word from the Lord said, Okay, I don't want to hear this anymore. Because I tell you what, even if that were so, from now on, you answer for your own sin. Everyone shall, and everyone shall die for his own sin. You've got enough. The soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is death, and all have sinned. Yeah. You as a people. Meaning, I'm 
going to restore your great great grandchildren. Maybe not you individually. Very bad for you. Yeah. You know, uh, but we take those verses and just lift them up and say, no, 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 God has a plan for me. You know, and as I was as I was studying this, I thought through some of the psychology of this in terms of how do we how do we respond to hard times when we're going through them, and how do we what is our outlook and particularly being Americans, we always individualize everything anyway. Americans are hyper-individualistic. We always have been. That's part of our history. That's part of who we are as a people. As a people, we are individuals. That's kind of how we think, more, more so than any other culture that uh, has ever lived, I think. And yet, in the same way, we, we do think of ourselves, we, even when we, you know, when when we're going through hard times, or maybe we may not personally be going through hard times, but we may see things that are going on, and we do have concerns for our nation. And Lord, what is your plan for our nation in the, in the future? Will we survive as a people? And that matters to us, doesn't it? And it matters to us how our children and our children's children will fare in the days to come. And we do think not only of... We, we really do think, and sometimes... Even when things are going well with us, we become anxious for the future, for generations to come, that it will be such. Let me interject here a very important principle, and I've been hinting all about it, and we're going to see it follow through even more so. But a very significant principle that we need to nail down, and that is, how shall I put it? There are lots of different ways to put it. The story isn't over until God says it's over. And by the way, I've read the end of the book. God wins. And we who are in Christ win with Him. And that is the end of the story. But the story isn't over until we say it, until God says it's over. The end of the story here is not the end of the story. So take this thought with you. This too shall pass. When things are going hard for you and you cannot, you don't think that you're going to get through it, you don't think you're going to make it, this too shall pass. But what if I don't make it? Does God still live? Also, when things are going well, you need to understand. When all the blessed, when, when you're as high as you can be, when everything is going just right, and there are no problems anywhere in the world, this too shall pass. That's Tim brought up to me some, uh, a phrase that, what is it, the idiot principle? The idiot rule? That is... Even if you get everything going right, there's always an idiot who will come along to mess it up. <laughs> I, it's, going to happen. it's going to happen. Eventually. And you look and you see, this is a witness of all of Scripture. Folks, nothing in this world is permanent. Nothing. So the gospel song tells us, build your hopes on things eternal.
hold of God's unchanging hand. Jeremiah saying, hold of God's unchanging hand. God seems to have, but what if God seems to have changed? God has changed toward us. God, has, God used to bless us and now he's cursed us. Finally, in the last analysis, God doesn't change. Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. How did, God, how did God make the covenant? When God made the covenant with them at, the, at Mount Sinai, what did God write his law on? Tablets of stone. God said, next time I make the covenant, we're going to dispense with the stones. I'm going to write my law on their hearts. Mm. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. You know, at one point, in the first church that I served as pastor, after... Uh, running through everything that I had been taught in seminary and discovered I had no more tricks left. And then uh, began to, okay, Lord, how do you want to do this? <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the observations that I, I made, you know, looking on this and reflecting on this, on this very verse is that it now here I am a Baptist I've grown up among Baptists I'm serving Baptists you know, and it just seems to me that an awful lot of our church work an awful lot of our church ministry and service boils down to each one telling his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the Lord come on people know the Lord know the Lord would you, would you just know the Lord Please, every know the Lord. Come on, come on. Know the Lord. Just trying to get everybody on board to know the Lord. I'm thinking, what's wrong with this picture? In 2 Corinthians and in Hebrews, this passage from Jeremiah is cited. This is where the term the New Testament or the new, this, this is where the New Testament comes from. This is what the word New Testament means, the new covenant. And this is it. And the essence of the new covenant is that the law of God is not written merely externally to us on tablets of stone. It's written in our hearts. Now, it doesn't mean that we automatically know everything that we're supposed to know so that nobody had, you know, and that's a misunderstanding that some have of what John's, it says in First John, you all have, 
have an anointing from the Holy One, you all know. Here's the difference. External ministry. And this is the ministry of the law. You keep the law in order to know the Lord. Here's the ministry of the new covenant. You know the Lord. Therefore you keep the law. Yeah. There was a time that I was kind of teaching a Bible study for high school kids. And so I periodically not understand something. So I'd ask my minister, you know, to explain something. And in the back of my mind, I always felt a little guilty because it says here I'm supposed to, this is written on my heart. Why do I need to ask somebody to explain something that it was supposedly written on my heart? I must have, I'm, somehow I'm failing. I'm supposed to be able to figure this out for myself. And I, I never quite figured out why I shouldn't feel, I, it doesn't seem right that I should feel guilty about it, but I kind of do because of I don't understand how the, the implementation of that writing on your heart, knowing the scriptures. Let me give you an illustration of that that is somewhat different, you know, that, that, that take, puts it in a different category, but basically it really comes down to the same thing. It's very analogous. When Jesus came into this world, did he have to learn how to read and write? So the Son of God coming into the world had to go to school to learn how to read and write. He went to school to learn the scriptures. He went, he learned those things. He asked questions of his elders. As a child in the temple, going into the temple, he it says, it didn't go say that he went and began preaching. He says he asked questions of those who were there. He was, he was a learner himself, though he himself is the son of God. And yet he had to learn. This, did he have the law of God written on his heart? Absolutely. And yet he learned these things. The different, The main thing is, the law of God written on your heart means the character of Jesus Christ is implanted in us. And it is our... The law is not something that we struggle with. The law is not something in the new covenant. We don't struggle with the commands of God. We don't struggle against that as though we were having to compete with that. Let me prove that to you from the scripture, which are, we're going to be studying. The next book we're going to be going to is Romans. So let's give you a little preview of Romans. Look at Romans chapter 8. And by the way, notice the... Uh, in the foundation, the continuation of that, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. 
but to set the mind on the spirit is life and the peace, life and peace. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. In fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. That's what it means to have the law written. It doesn't mean that we automatically know everything. It doesn't mean that we, honest, it doesn't mean that we have all of the answers. Sharpening your tools. You've got your axe, and it's a matter of sharpening. Then this, then then Jeremiah goes on and says, we've got the new covenant, and then we've got this attitude. Have I rejected Israel? Says God poses, as it were, the question. If I rejected Israel, I'll tell you what. Here's when I'm... I'll tell you when I reject Israel. I'll tell you when you can do away with Israel. I'll tell you when you can do away with the Jews, get rid of them. Here's, here's how you do it. If the heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they've done, declares the Lord. Isaiah had very similar words. Can a woman forget her nursing child or fail to have compassion on the son of her womb? She may forget, but I will not forget you, O Israel. Behold, I have engraved my people on the palms of my hand. Behold, the day is coming, verse 38 declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt from the Lord. The last, last words of that chapter, it shall not be uprooted or overthrown anymore. And then chapter 32, Jeremiah has another object lesson for us. And, with the, and the, the whole thought, I'm sure Jeremiah thought, okay, the Lord's, oh, the Lord's got me doing something again. Oh no, what kind of judgment is this? Because God tells Jeremiah, and where Jeremiah is at this point, he's under house arrest. King Zedekiah has... Has thrown him. He's locked him up. He's not in a dungeon cell, as it were, but he's he's locked up. He's in an interior place in the palace, so he can't be heard speaking because he's been saying he's been pronouncing judgment upon the people, and the uh, and the Babylonians have surrounded Jerusalem. Jerusalem is under siege. Nebuchadnezzar is out there sharpening his knife. Everything is. I mean, they're getting ready to come in and. Jeremiah's out there and telling the people, the city's going to go up in flames and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And it just kind of is discouraging to the troops on the wall. So Zedekiah's had him arrested, so he's under arrest now. And he's, he's put away and, and all of this. And uh, so that Jeremiah won't be going out there telling the troops to, go, to surrender and it'll go better for you. And uh, despite the fact that that's the truth. So... And under these circumstances, God says to Jeremiah, your cousin's going to come, he's going to show up, and he's going to want you to buy a field out in your hometown. He's, you're gonna, you, you've got the option to redeem this field of land. Okay, now who's occupying that field of land right now? Babylonians! Okay? Who's... Okay, there, I mean, just it should be enough said. So Jeremiah said, great. And then this very cousin shows up. And when he shows up, Jeremiah says, then I knew 
this is from the Lord. See, so that gives us a kind of an understanding of, you know, Jeremiah did not take that for granted, okay? These thoughts, these impressions, because what? It seems crazy. So here's this, and, he said, and sure enough, this cousin comes up with this really idiotic proposition. Jeremiah, how would you like to buy this property? So, so, that, so that it will stay in the family? No other property is going to stay in anybody's family. It's all going to go to the Babylonians, and the Babylonians are going to give it to whoever just comes in and takes it after they get sent out. And God says, Jeremiah, buy the property. And Jeremiah takes silver, which we have no idea what the value of property that day. We have no idea what the value of silver was in that day, but it was undoubtedly extremely. Value of silver, small amount of silver would be very high. Value of property would be very low. And so Jeremiah got gypped, totally, undoubtedly, in terms of just a commercial deal, but he bought the land. Had the deed, and we have an, an exquisite, demonstration of how they carried out business in this day. And what they did, and they had two copies of everything. Said, we've got one open copy and we've got one sealed copy that can only be opened and be checked if the, if the other one gets lost or damaged. And put them in jars, clay jars, put them in pots, seal them so, so they'll stay secure and you know we can put them in the, uh, in the land office, which is not going to exist, but somehow or another this is going to survive. And everything, uh, you know, you're going to buy this property. What's the point of this object lesson? And as a matter of fact, you know, and God tells Jeremiah, said, because people are going to, your people are going to return to this land. They're going to be buying and selling land again. And I want them to know that. And I want you to go ahead and invest. Okay. Okay, now that actually gets to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah goes to the Lord in prayer. And this is only one of two prayers that we see in Jeremiah. Two explicit prayers. It's a wonderful prayer. And Jeremiah starts out saying, Oh, Lord God. <laughs> Just look how he says that. Oh, Lord God. <laughs> you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too difficult. great in counsel, mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and the fruit of your deeds. Oh, Lord. And he goes on and he says, now, I know how great you are, and I know what you've done, and I know that there's nothing. And then verse 23 says, but yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city's given to the hands of the Chaldeans. He said, now, Jeremiah is saying, God, I don't doubt you. But I gotta ask. <laughs> Why? God says, the Lord said, came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Well, Jeremiah's already said, No, nothing's too hard for you. He says, Really? You really believe that? Now that tests us, it really does. I mean, when the Chaldeans are around the city and we're wondering and, and everything is... I mean, we, we do wonder, don't we? God, I know, I know the doctrine. I know the truth. I know the Bible. I know the stories. I know nothing is too difficult for you. 
says, nothing is too difficult for me. Don't you believe, do you believe that? Really? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm giving the city into the, I am giving the city into the hands of the Chaldeans, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against the city shall come set the city on fire and burn it with the houses, the roofs, offerings that have been made to Baal, the drink offerings of other gods, provoke me of Israel. They've done nothing but evil in the children of Israel and children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight, provoke me from their youth. Verse 33, they've turned their back and not their face, and though I've taught them persistently, they've not listened to receive instruction. Now, therefore, verse 36, concerning the city of which you say it's given in the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence, behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and wrath and in my great indignation. I will bring them back to this place. And I will make them dwell in safety, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. That is a unique expression. Where have you ever heard God speaking of all his heart and all his soul? Mm. For thus says the Lord, just as I brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Ver last words of that chapter, for I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. So, invest, Jeremiah. This place has a future. Jeremiah is being tested. Jeremiah has prophesied the promises of God before, but now he's saying, do you really believe it? Get out there and buy some. At my word, act upon your faith. Now the prophecies that are going here, there are different things coming together and some of them are going to be fulfilled in, within about 70 years from this time and others are going to be fulfilled at the end of time. All of these prophecies are looked and they're brought together and they're seen together in the same telescope just as we look up into the night sky and even get a small telescope and look and we see a cluster of stars and yet the ones that we see are not together. They are sometimes millions, billions of miles away from one another. And yet we see them all together in a cluster. It's like Jeremiah is looking and seeing all of these prophets, promises of God together as a group. And so some of these promises were fulfilled with the return of the people of Judah from Babylon to Jerusalem. And some of them were fulfilled with the coming of Jesus the first time. And some of them will not be fulfilled until he returns. Thus says the Lord who made the earth. Verse chapter 33. The Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Yahweh is his name. Call to me. I will answer you. I will tell you great and hidden things you haven't known. You don't understand what's going on? So ask me. If anybody can tell you. Now I may hold these things from you. Because it may not be yours to know yet. But the only one who knows. The only one who can tell you is the one who knows. And I'm the only one who knows. So call to me. And I will answer you. And I may not tell you everything. But I'll tell you more than you ever thought you would know. And as to the mystery of all of this. Chapter 33, verse 
8, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and glory before all nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I shall do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and prosperity I provide for it. The promise that I gave to Abraham still stands. Verse 14, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and this is another messianic prophecy, a prophecy of Christ. I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days. Now see, we've, been, we've learned to dread that phrase, in those days, in Jeremiah. For good reason. And yet he brings that same phrase across. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is verse 18, 19 and 20. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David my servant shall be broken, so that he shall not have a, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests my ministers. There will be always a king and there will always be a priesthood and they shall be fulfilled and have been fulfilled in Christ. That's the message of Hebrews. Last words of this this passage. Remember folks, whatever you are in, wherever you are, this too shall pass. Remember also the words of Corrie Ten Boom, the lesson that she learned in the concentration camp. There is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. Look at the last words of the verse of the chapter. For I will restore their fortunes God who had rejected them stop taking you back God can do that because he's God you've been listening to the sixth of ten episodes covering the book of Jeremiah in our next episode we'll be given a peek behind the scenes at the prophet's tribulations and what he endured to bring the truth to his nation. I hope you'll tune in. This is Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for listening.